Welcome to the Flavors of Ice Cream. Throughout my entrepreneurial and career journey, as so many people tell me, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. Hey, no stress. How can you know what your favorite flavor of ice cream is if you haven't tried that many flavors of ice cream? Likewise, how can you know what you want to do with your life if you haven't tried all that much? In this podcast, we explore different avenues and pathways together so you can figure out what's right for you. Let's get to it. So welcome back to another episode of Flavors of Ice Cream. Uh, today we have David Liu, who is a partner at 256 Ventures, a global cryptocurrency fund investing and managing a portfolio of diversified digital assets. He's also a venture partner at Virgil Capital, which is a multinational, multi-strategy, quantitative firm trading on cryptocurrencies. And then he also had a really interesting pathway where he was a no-band venture capital for a bit, where he had a fair share of VC experience working in and around different countries, so Catapult in the UK, Zeroth in Hong Kong, Golden Gate Ventures in Singapore. And then during university, he founded two social enterprises, so Challenging Inequality, which is an alternative credit rating system for refugees, and Textbook Ventures, which is a student-led venture firm to promote entrepreneurship and venture capital in the tertiary education space. In addition to his many talents, such as being the former member of the Australian fencing team and a recipient of a plethora of different competition awards and scholarships, in his spare time, he also engages in the academic realm, publishing a few different papers in the entrepreneurial space and occasionally writing articles for the Forbes, Coindesk and TechNature. So David, do you want to quickly say hi to the audience? Hey guys, it's great to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So <laughs> thanks for joining us on a Saturday morning, and I know you had your U.S. calls in the morning. Um, so what I really want to know, and I'm going to start doing this for all the podcasts, and you're the first person I'm going to ask this question to, so you should be extremely honored, um, is going to be, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? I'd have to say hazelnut, you know, chocolatey, but with a smooth kind of texture. So yeah, that's probably what uh, what would I enjoy the most? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Wait, do you even like ice cream or is that just like, do you actually no, I, eat it or is it just if you have to, you pick hazelnut? No, no, no. Like I, I actually ice cream like too much, like roasted hazelnut, all this kind of variation. I'm the kind of guy that will have an affogato and sort of throw in a shot of frangelico, which is a, a hazelnut liqueur. So there, there you have it. And that's sort of how I spice my vanilla ice cream on a Friday night. I don't even know what any of those words mean. You're too rich for my blood, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I just like chocolate ice cream. Very plain. Very, it like is never done me wrong. It just, it's always good. So, you know. It's always solid. It's a solid contender. Yeah. Plus I'm brown. So it kind of like, you know, I try to stay true to my color. <laughs> See, I was going to make that comment, but then I thought coming from me, that might set a bad for how this conversation goes if I refrain from it. I think, I think if you're just talking shit about yourself, self-deprecation is definitely okay. <laughs> so if you want to talk shit about yourself, that's perfectly fine. Wonderful. <laughs> so um, actually, so the, the question I want to lead off with is just, just to get started. What are you personally curious about? So you have experience in VC, you have experience in cryptocurrencies and a lot of different things. Um, what's caught your attention recently and then what are you curious about right now? I think... At a more macro, it's always been how the world works, right? I think fundamentally, we exist at a sort of tiny microcosm of this sort of, you know, this world at large, particularly being Australian, we're quite removed from the rest of the world. So it's quite interesting to see how 
things unfold. So, you know, if you look at what happened recently, um, riots in Hong Kong as a result of proposed extradition laws into China, uh, things like a new currency that Facebook has launched, um, those I think all have really significant impacts on how the word world works right now. I mean, in you know, how can anyone conceive of uh, a single party passing an extradition bill in what you know is largely a democratic society, at least in Hong Kong? You know, how does a global currency affect the currencies of a lot of smaller nations? or perhaps nations that have currencies that are quite volatile in their own right. So if we take Venezuela, uh, the, the Venezuelan peso, or the Turkish Libra, like they're all struggling. And, you know, there are a lot of political considerations around how a currency moves. And that really shouldn't be a case for you know, someone's uh, day-to-day well-being. So if I'm earning $10, I should be earning $10. I shouldn't be earning $10 today, but then have that depreciation to $5. So I think as a macro, that's what I'm super interested about. So what's very really interesting is that you're talking about a lot of things happening outside of Australia and just sort of international affairs. And and you're kind of, you know, in the space as well where you're traveling a lot and, and meeting a new, lot of new, new different people. Um, so like, when did you first start traveling a lot? Because I know you travel a lot now, like myself. Um, but when did you start traveling and did it change your perspective on things or did it, give you a new point of view in, in compared to like your entrepreneurship journey and like your education, et cetera? Totally. Uh, I think that I've always had an itch to, I guess, go abroad and see things outside of, I guess, my comfort zone. That's sort of where it initially started. And I also just have itchy feet and just generally restless. But it wasn't until I think my study abroad, which I did in the UK, where things really started to open up. I mean, I had done sort of one, two-week trips to... Uh, the U.S. for like a model UN conference back in second uni. I went over to Stanford to do participate in a, uh, an entrepreneurship summit, which also was a nice sort of snapshot into sort of the world at large. But it was very sort of curated and in a very safe environment. Whereas not saying that my exchange was unsafe, it was not unsafe at all. Um, it was an extended period of time. It was living away from home for the first time, you know, sole independent for you know six months, and then throughout that traveling across Europe and just experiencing all these different cultures, seeing how much I'd learned sort of, you know, on the streets and culturally from, you know, hanging out with people, be it sort of uh, walking tours or even just at bars at night, just talking to people and understanding that, hey, this person has a very different cultural upbringing or a very different perspective to sort of what I'm used to. Hearing all that, I think it has been super helpful in, I guess, coloring my experiences and saying, well, at the end of the day, Australia is just one part of a very big world. I think there are so many parts that add a certain richness to, I guess, your overall experience. I think there's a common saying that you don't know what you don't know. And part of, I guess, my interest to travel is to sort of uh, solve that. It's like, you know, if I don't know what I don't know, let's sort of throw ourselves out there and and see what comes and see what sticks. And I think that's been the most sort of exciting learning journey that I've sort of had. And it's also the, the the journey that you know you learn the most in because you're not prepared for anything. So you've got to react with the sort of experience that you have to a new set of uh, a new set of you know situations or circumstances that that might arise during your travel. So that's why this is sort of super exciting. It's um, I guess call it unconscious street learning. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that a lot of us get tunnel vision with our own countries, and we just sort of live in our neighborhood and. 
you know, don't really see life beyond that. But, you know, I just did a podcast, um, you know, actually half an hour before this, which was preparing for 2030. And one of the key drivers was globalization. The fact that you can now source talent overseas, you can find people and you'll probably work with people overseas more and more frequently. And I'm sure like this week for you, like, like myself, uh, most of the calls we did were like with people in different countries and uh, interacting with them. And that's part of our jobs, right? So I think it's really interesting that, um, you know, as people from Sydney that prior to traveling may not have experienced a lot of different things and we're now being exposed to it and has now opened up a lot more doors and also become um, more normal, right? And I think it's going to be a driving factor for a lot more people outside of just us as well, uh, being having to interact with people externally and that becoming part of their job. Certainly. Was there anything you wanted to add to that? Like, um, in terms of how you think, I, I guess, like more broadly, how it's impacted your professional life, right? Because surely you brought stuff from overseas and or discovered things and said, hey, actually, you know, I don't want to do law anymore. Um, and I want to do this because I've experienced this overseas and I've seen what this is like. Yeah, for sure. So for the law bit, I, I don't think I was ever destined to become a lawyer. I think if you asked me to read contracts, uh, from a, a nine to nine day to day at a firm that would drive me insane and my brain would positively explode. And also I'd just be bad at the job because I think uh, I, I can't do repeat tasks super well. I might do it, you know, I might find it interesting for the first two or three times, but you know, there are only so many different kinds of flaws that you can add into, you know, a contract of sale or, 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 or investment contract or a fund a document. I mean, there's only so many bits that you can really sort of spice up and as creative one might get. So I think that that's where the external piece uh, speaks really, uh, speaks strongly and resonates a lot with me is because, you know, you're talking to and working with a bunch of people who um, are, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, super different. And how you interact with, say, someone in the US versus someone in, say, uh, China is very, very different culturally. Um, I, I, as a hedge fund manager, what you'll notice in the US is people might say, ask a lot about your numbers, how are you trading the strategy, how are you actually, you know, how are you making money basically? Whereas in China, that piece is quite different. They're less interested about your numbers, more interested about you as a person. They'll rather take you out to a bar, take you out to dinner, get you to hang out with some of their friends and really sort of assess you from a social setting and sort of conclude that, hey, you're someone that we can trust and you know, you've got a demonstrated track record, you've got the whole educational piece there. We'll trust you to make that money. So it's a quite a different sort of perspective on things. And I think for me, this is like where the things get super curious. I mean, I'm Chinese Australian. So, you know, as Chinese Australian, we're in this sort of like weird limbo that, you know, you probably grew up with a native language, but then you end up speaking English at school and that wasn't your first language. And at this point in my life, you're sort of curious about sort of both sides of the world. And I'm sure a lot of people that are you know, second generation in perhaps an English-speaking country will, will have that urge or that sort of itch to, to get out there to sort of see the, the side that you know, they didn't necessarily grow up with, but sort of had exposure to you know, uh, through parents, grandparents or relatives. So that's sort of what's uh, sparked a lot of my interest as well, to, to spend a lot of the time across uh, different cultures and different borders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I have a similar experiences having a, you know, coming from an immigrant family that 
uh, and born in Australia and like a more Western country. Um, so you kind of want to expose yourself to different things. And I guess in some ways it's a little bit of a benefit as well, because you can kind of um, mesh with both areas. Um, but what you mentioned was really interesting about how you, you know, you studied law and then you decided it wasn't for you. Like, what was that process like? Like, why did you, why did you pick law in the first place? And then why did you deviate away from it? To be honest, I'm going to give you a textbook answer, which is, you know, a, a lot of parental influence from an immigrant household who, who I think from, I mean, to their credit, they think of us as a generation that shouldn't be working as hard physically. They, you know, they want to do something that's of a higher social standing and, you know, naturally degrees like law or medicine come at the top. So, you know, for me, I end up doing law and you know, my younger brother is, is in med school. So that's like the sort of the, 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 the duo, right? Um, in terms of how I figured out why I didn't want to do it, it's a matter of, I guess, trial and error. And then you'll probably hear this with a lot of, uh, for those who might be familiar in the startup space, a lot of sort of validation and figuring out, hey, what works, what doesn't work. Um, in the sense that I, know, I would, I think I would put myself out, out there, uh, work in you know, various roles, be it legal. So, I mean, my background's in commerce and law, so I have two degrees. Um, you know, I was working at, a law firm as a paralegal in wills and estates for wills and estates and land for a while. So, basically, what happens to your land if you pass away? Who does it go to? How do you register? You know, transfer of sale, all those things. I think that was interesting because it was such a small firm to to get uh, an oversight of you know what legal practice looked like. What was actually involved in uh, in day to day? Is it as glamorous as something? As suits where you know you stand up in the courtroom, the the internal the associate um, says X and manages to seal this you know billion dollar deal. Most often, you know you might get things like conveyancing that are working with just you know day to day stuff, you know transfer of sale for a five hundred thousand dollar piece of land for for a house that's wanting to build to get you know uh, various bills, strata or whatever that might be sort of included. So things that you might be exposed to on a day to day, things that you might be familiar with already, but you know just you know. Lawyers seem to have this uh, this glamour of uh, it looks a bit more official. They're lawyers and they know how to sort of navigate the law. Once I actually put myself in that in, in that in those shoes, it was like, well, actually, what we do here isn't super duper exciting. I mean, am I really changing and impacting people? I think arguably yes for the client, but you know, can you do that at scale? You're limited by a function of your time, and that wasn't exciting for me. And I think the same could be said of banking. So I spent a bit of time at a real estate. Uh, focus investment banking firm where we would buy building commercial buildings you'd also buy like car parks for example I, mean, I can tell you that car parks are super profitable if you subdivide them the right way and you can make a bunch of money from that and that's what they do in places like hong kong where space is really tight and you need, need to sort of build upwards so how do you optimize a piece of land say a car park and generate income or generate a fixed income off that look that's exciting and i think commercially taught me a lot of valuable skills but once again the question comes around to me being you know what sort of impact am I really making you know I might, might have made some a bunch of people pretty rich I might have given some folks you know a place to park their car for a day but that's hardly exciting from you know once again and I'll go back to this frequently throughout this conversation this whole macro piece like is that it yeah wow okay that, that makes a lot of sense and I think um, that seems to be a motivation for a lot of people who go into entrepreneurship and, and these kind of fields where they can not just get 
value for the time, but try and reach more people. And something that was really interesting that, you know, when I was well, also, cause I know you as well, throughout your university time, not only did you start to deviate your way, but you actually started something, right? So like, what was the journey for textbook ventures like? Like, why did you start it with Pat and, and what was that journey like? Yeah, for sure. So it started, I mean, quite accidentally. I was always entrepreneurial minded. Um, and I think a large uh, influence was sort of how our parents as immigrants came and built things from nothing. So I think a lot of this thinking was unconsciously sort of baked in. So naturally, uh, quite a few of my friends were running their own startups, running their own businesses, be it ticketing services or doing sort of educational boot camps overseas. You know, there, there were a bunch of sort of, you know, weird various you know ideas that I think, you know, they had a marker and they served it. They weren't necessarily that big, but you know they were putting themselves out there. I think the turning point for me was I was speaking to one of my friends who was you know running a startup. He had been doing this for about a year, year and a half, and you know raised uh, uh, money from an angel investor. So an angel investor is typically a high net worth that gives you anywhere in between you know you know ten to a hundred thousand dollars, perhaps even more, to fund your business. And it's usually the first check that you might get from an external party. So I mean picture this as a university student, you're twenty years old, and someone offers to hand you thirty percent uh thirty thousand dollars in exchange for thirty percent of a company. You don't really think about how big your company might be. Or most people might not think about sort of the scale at which their business might be and just take the money because you know, thirty thousand dollars by know student means is, is a lot of money and it's more money than most people at that age would have held in their hand so it's very easy to get lost in that and say hey i'll take the deal and you know let's 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 use the money because for you know, a student startup a cash strap business you know getting that kind of injection is, is 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 super super exciting it's you know validation that someone else thinks that this idea is also going to be good so there's an emotional piece there um but in essence, this guy took 30% of the company for $30,000. So that places the company at a valuation of about $100,000, which is not that much. Um, but, you know, once, once again, all things relative might seem like a lot. So the company goes on for about another six months to nine, six to nine months when the founder then realizes that, hey, this investor is not really doing anything. He's just sitting back and we're doing all the hard work. But every dollar we earn, 30% of that goes to him in terms of the value of the company. Now, that's hardly exciting, and nor is it sort of a good incentive to, to sort of strive towards higher heights if you know that this is your first round of funding and already you have lost 30% of the company to someone else. So every dollar you make, 30% goes elsewhere. As you grow bigger, as you require more money, you've got to give you know, more of that away, more of that you know, 70% that you have, which you know, eventually might get to the point where you, know, you might be working um, you know, day in, day out, but only get 10 or 15% of the upside. Now, that's not really enticing for a young founder. And what struck me was that, you know, for him, this was his first time going through that investment process. Uh, but for the investor, they would they would have done these deals, uh, written the terms of agreements, as we call term sheets in this industry. They would have done 100, 200 term sheets or seen at least thousands of them. So naturally, there's a significant advantage in favor of, uh, the person that's done it more and more times, just like you know, you might practice an equation, you might solve a problem uh, in maths class, and you might do it over and over again until you sort of get it. Same, the same concept applies here. If doing it for the first time is always a bit scary, and 
more often than not, you might get it wrong. You will get it wrong. And that's something that struck me. It was like, you know, entrepreneurship in Australia has traditionally been lagging. And this is one of the very factors. It's, you know, it's not, and it's, it's not enticing if you go in, you get, you know, uh, taken advantage of or scalped by an investor who, you know, obviously for his end, his or her, and they're trying to get the best commercial deal, but on a more sort of uh, impact externality sort of based uh, thinking is that that discourages students from setting more startups because they've sort of been burnt once and you don't need burnt again. Uh, And I had just come back from the US and I had just come back from the US and from my study abroad and overseas, entrepreneurship at the student level really flourished. You had entrepreneurship centers that were specifically built for students to test their idea. You had student VC funds overseas as well that served that very purpose. And that was exciting to see. You had centers at, say, Harvard or MIT that had dedicated staff who bounced ideas of students. And these people had, you know, been through the whole journey before. And suddenly, as a student, you had a lot of resources, a lot of support and infrastructure to learn from, which, you know, I don't think necessarily existed in, in Sydney at the time. So for me, the idea was sort of simple. It was like, let's take a concept from overseas and bring it to Australia, which you know, that in itself has sort of risks to it, which I'll go into later. But that was the initial premise of the idea. It's like, hey, the causation for entrepreneurship flourishing so strongly at, say, Silicon Valley, as we all like to talk about, is because at the grassroots level, the right things are being done to incentivize students to get out there and you know, take that risk. That risk isn't high enough. Uh, that risk is um, is worth it because because essentially what you're getting into is that you're you're getting into a learning program. You can ask people if things you know might seem a little bit off. Whereas here, you sort of did it on your own. You didn't have sort of a, this super dedicated student center or a team who had actually been through that founder journey, knew what you were going through. That didn't really exist. And that's something we wanted to replicate. Um, on the ground in Australia to try and solve that problem. Help me, walk, like walk me through the the timeline here. So you went to the US, you studied. Did you have any VC experience when you first started Textbook Ventures? I had a short stint, and that's when I knew that I wanted to do it. So while I was overseas, I spent a bit of time at a UK VC, and I think that was just a stroke of luck. I was actually just a student on exchange, and I managed to meet a professor from one of the classes, floated the idea to him and then realized that you know there could be legs for what we were doing and he knew that you know i had just sort of come up with this student vc idea didn't have much experience and then offered to take me under his wing and allowed me to spend a bit of time at his company while i was still in exchange so i spent a bit of time at the uk vc in in an area that i knew nothing about it was actually med tech and life sciences and the amount of learning I got in those two, three weeks that I spent there was absolutely phenomenal. And that's when I realized this is the industry I wanted to be in. So that was sort of the the foray into venture, I guess. And I think for my co-founder, Pat, um, he had a similar experience uh, over that summer of 2015, 2016, where he spent bit, uh, three months at one of Australia's, I think one of Australia's top VC firms, Blackbird Ventures. And we sort of came together over a beer one night and said, hey, you know, these are some of the problems that you know, we've noticed in the Australian space, and I told him that I had an idea to set up, set up a student VC. I said, look, we should just set up a student VC and run it. 
I don't know how qualified we are. Uh, and to be honest, we weren't really that qualified, but we're like, let's just do something because there's a problem and we might have some of the right skills and tools to, to, to solve it. So that's the genesis. Yeah. And then, then how did you go about gaining the skills that you were lacking? So I see that you've done a couple of different positions in, in different VCs. So like, how did you go about that? And, and what was that process like? So with this, it's always a, a chicken and egg. Back in 2015, 2016, the Australian venture capital industry is nowhere near as developed as it is today. So, you know, where, where do we get our learning from? Like, what I think, I guess, is what is our unique offering as students that no one else can provide? We used to go around town and say that we understood the student market better. We could access student projects and student founders that no one else could access, which arguably is true. But there are a lot of gaps in terms of our own understanding of venture. It's not Shark Tank or things that you might see on TV that just you know an entrepreneur pitches to you and you know you look at some numbers, you look at the IP and it looks good and off you go, you tick the boxes and you sign the deal. Um, no, finding startups is actually good teams is, is very, very hard. And essentially for us, we didn't know a lot of that. We didn't know the questions that we need to ask a founder. We, we knew very little because we had very little on the ground experience. We had been exposed to VC through the lens of an intern, but have we run our own funds before? And the answer was no. So I guess we saw this shortfall pretty quickly. So um, to, I guess, address the, the knowledge gap, we shopped this idea around. We started off with um, the guys at Blackbird. So Nikki, Shavak, and McBaker were our first advisors. And we just learned a lot from our advisors and you know, slowly built that advisory board out to be uh, a bunch of VCs across Sydney. So we got someone from Airtree Ventures, who another large VC, uh, NAB Ventures, the corporate VC arm of NAB, uh, and a few, even a few family office uh, investors to come on board as our advisors and those were sort of the formal advisors but we also had a mentor pool that spanned you know uh, over sort of 60 plus people who are all within the the sydney startup ecosystem and it was just wonderfully refreshing to see how you know generous everyone was with their time and that's where a lot of i guess my learning came from. it was through the ad hoc conversations of coffee saying that hey i've got this company that's trying to work on space like heck i'm a commerce law student i don't know anything about space or anything about med tech or you know anything about VR, for example, how do I go and supplement my learning in an area I know nothing about? So you end up finding various experts and people that focus on specific verticals. And it's just a constant feedback cycle. It's constant validation saying that, hey, is what I'm doing, uh, does it make sense? Am I asking the right questions? Uh, and you, know, you put yourself out there to, to, to pick the brains of these mentors. You ask them, for this early stage company, what are some of the things you would say to them? You know, what would you want to see in terms of the next progress point? Those kind of questions really informed how informed and I think gradually developed our thinking around around venture and venture uh, venture and how to sort of approach that uh, that the fund. What I really like about the the gestation of textbook ventures is actually very similar to the way that Real Skills started in the fact that. When I started it and I was just trying to help engineers get employed, I didn't know anything about employment. I didn't know anything about HR and all these different things that may come about. And exact same position where like I wanted to make a difference, but 
I didn't necessarily have the skill set. So I got advisors who knew a lot more than I did and learned from them and then tried to pass the knowledge on and eventually just learned more and more. And what's interesting about, I guess, both these two case studies is there was this, um, there was this paper released about, um, they did a study with like students who were teaching these robots. And so instead of learning the content for themselves, they were told to learn the content and then teach it to someone else. And so the, the rate of learning and the rate of growth was much, much quicker when they found that the students had to teach um, these AIs like how to read or how to uh, count numbers. And so learning for the sake of teaching someone else increases your accountability and also just speeds up that entire process. And so I think that's actually like one of the two things that, so one of the things that actually was conducive to uh, the success factors of this, being able to rapidly learn and then condense it and then teach someone else, you just learn a lot faster. Um, so actually I don't have the paper on hand, but I'll probably link it down in the show notes. So if you want to check that out, it's just a very interesting concept where teaching people just increases the way that you learn as well. No, definitely great because for us we in order for us to be valuable to the student companies like bearing in mind we had no formal education Pat, patrick and i both came from commerce law backgrounds there was you know very little diversity in by way of our backgrounds so if someone who was working on a space project so say they wanted to launch a cubesat into space into orbit like we couldn't tell you what sort of equations uh my might might be able to um but for the most part that's quite foreign to us the you know what sort of costs are acquired in building a basically a mini rocket ship and in order to be of use to these founders you have to stay a step ahead and that's where the rapid learning cycles come in you'd have to sort of process the stuff that so they would come to your question with a question or a bunch of questions you would sort of say hey look i'll get back to you next week and in that sort of week you would talk to a bunch of mentors you would talk to someone who was running a space company you would talk to a lot of figures essentially and then to sort of tied off you would have to then synthesize all that and then condense into a concise format which you could then provide that founder in your next one-to-one session the following week and when you think about it there's one thing just to absorb information but there's another sort of component to it where you've also got to explain it and explain it in a concise manner and that's arguably the hardest thing that most it's hardest thing and also a skill that most people uh, don't get to exercise early on Usually in a firm, it might be a one-way kind of street, but for us, we were it was two ways. Like we took it in, and then we uh, spat it out, and then we sort of obviously didn't, we put it in a in a context that was most easily understood and digested by a founder. But that process taught us a lot about um, learning different industries that we necessarily we didn't necessarily didn't necessarily have formal backgrounds in. Yeah, and I think that's highly valuable, right? Like so you know, I went through your program, right? And I think what was really interesting about what you and Pat did was that, you know, if I was to talk to the VCs directly, I probably wouldn't have, I would probably would have got the information, but you explaining it through more of a student founder lens um, was just incredibly valuable, right? And actually, arguably one of the more valuable programs I did during my university time uh, for the startup. So I think there's a lot of value in being able to take information and like, explain it in the demographic that you're in right and i think real skills does a similar thing where we take the information from all these hr managers and engineering recruiters and then we try to from a student perspective like this is our sort of perspective on things and this is how you can digest it in an easier format so 
I think what people would be really interested to know is like how you broke into the space and how you got the experience that you currently have. Going from, you know, you seeing what VC was and saying, hey, this is pretty cool. And then developing the skills necessary and in breaking into the industry. Like, do you have any tips? And if you were to distill all your learnings over the last few years into a couple of tips and actionables for people, what would they be? Yeah, for sure. I think the first thing is um, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Ultimately, as students, you will know very little by way of for both formal education and also just industry experience. And no one expects you to be the expert because if you were, then you wouldn't be at uni. So for us, or for me personally, having, I guess, the openness to put myself out there, to say, tell the VC and say, hey, my name's David. I want to do a student VC, um, but I actually have no understanding of what's involved. Can you help me get there? And I think I had a mission. I had a plan. And if that resonates with someone, then they will take time out of their schedules to, to help you. So for me, going to Blackbird as our first sort of first advisors and just telling them, you know, what our mission was, what we were trying to do, you know, at that point, I don't think we were, we were necessarily defensible or the best suited, but we were certainly the first people that, you know, at least tried to do something in that space. And our pitch to them was, um, look, when you guys were students at university, you guys all tinkered around startups. Wouldn't it have been a good idea if there was a student VC that could help you out with your ideas and really kickstart a lot of what you were doing and be a sounding board? And that resonated with a lot of the VCs um, in town. Um, you know, in Australia, everyone likes to point at Atlassian for being sort of this you know fresh out of uni startup, um, and that's you know one of the uh, one of the stakeholders we approached. We asked. Um, Mike and, uh, and Mike and his, his investment office, you know, if this is something that they would be interested in supporting. And it was really the story that resonated with them more strongly than anything else, saying that, look, if Atlassian had uh, you know, some more structured support and infrastructure back during the uni days, you know, would that have made a difference? And that's where it really, that's sort of the first point is people will help you if, if they see, you know, a genuine desire to execute on what you want to do. We didn't go about it to sort of get into VC and use that as an excuse to, uh, to to sort of dive into the industry. That gets quickly found out. We were genuinely curious about helping students, but at the time we didn't have the right tools to do that. So people were more than happy to open up, uh, you know, a lot of their educational repositories, uh, which is really just time. They spent time with us, talking to us about um, how they saw things. So that's sort of the first piece. And is there any particular skills or like if I was just a student and uh, obviously I may or may not want to start my own uh, textbook ventures or something like that, but maybe I just want to break into the field and get an internship. Is there any particular um, skills I should start building up or is it just more like just reaching out to as many people as you can and talking to them? The whole machine gun strategy doesn't really work. It's, you know, it needs to be targeted at ultimately. Um, because if if someone reaches out to you cold with a very, I mean, you've probably seen these generic emails um, that you know people just sort of hit like you know BCC everyone and send a mass burst out. The lack of personalization is not welcoming because it makes me think that hey, you could have the exact same pitch and the exact same conversation with someone else. Why would you come to me? So that's I think the most sort of 
important piece of advice that I got early in my days was, you know, make it personal. Like people don't work with people because, you know, it, it necessarily, you know, makes the best commercial sense. People like to work with people because they enjoy it. They enjoy it. I mean, if people are, if a mentor is giving up their time, say half an hour, an hour, and that hour that could be spent doing something else, you know, they better enjoy that conversation. Else, what's the incentive? I mean, why would you take time out of your schedule for someone who might have been a stranger at the time to entertain them, to answer their questions, if you didn't enjoy it? So if you just think of think of it from a human perspective, that just makes sense. And understanding those, understand those drivers personally. I think the best way to do that is just to reflect internally. If someone else, say a student in the younger year came to you and said, hey, you know, I want to learn, I want to sort of pick your brains and these kind of things. I want to understand what courses I want to do next year more likely than not if it's specific enough um say you're an aerospace student and someone in the junior year comes to you and says hey i don't know if doing a space thing actually makes sense can you give me some tips like sure it might not be just an in-person coffee chat it might just be a couple of messages over facebook and you'd be more inclined to sort of apply to that so that's, that's the same sort of fundamentals except sort of stretched out on a slightly slightly bigger scale yeah, so it's more about the connections that you make in the VC space and making sure you have more targeted people to talk to and mentors and things like that, right? That's the first piece. And then obviously, um, getting out there is uh, the genesis, is building that initial relationship. And that might be, you know, you go out cold, you might get a referral from someone, but that's how you start. Um, one key thing which I'll urge everyone to always uh, make note of is pay it forward. You know, these mentors are giving you their time to, to you know, to obviously a, a bigger purpose. And for us, we were passing that on to both the student founders and also uh, student investors. We were trying to train up student investors. Um, and at the same time, uh, initially, it might seem like a one-way street. Feel like, oh, you know, you might feel uh, insubstantial. You might feel in- inadequate for, you know, this mentor's time. And I certainly felt that. And I was like, you know, should I really be talking to this partner at Airtree Ventures? Like, this guy's like, you know, one of one of the the most sought after VCs, and I'm just having a coffee chat with him. Am I really worth that time? And you have those questions that pop into your head. Um, and what I can say to that is, uh, a lot of young students come to me and ask the same thing. They're like, oh, you know, I'm not really sure about reaching out to this person because, you know, why would they talk to me uh, in favor of everything else? And, you know, I don't blame you for thinking that because I think everything, everyone goes through that. But recognize that, you know, initially it might be a one-way street. It might be just, you know, them giving you advice and it might just sound like they're just giving you pointers and there's, you're not really giving anything back. Um, but for them, they probably had a lot of key mentors in their lives that did the exact same thing. So if you pay it forward, this cycle kind of continues. And also after a certain period of time, you might start building expertise in area that they might not have. And so then it becomes a two-way street. So you should never forget where your roots came from it is where I'm getting at with this. Yeah, <laughs> always going to pay it forward. Um, and I think initially you can't really pay it forward just because you may not have the experience. But I think people are okay with that because the, the generation above you is already trying to pay it forward. And then when you get up there, just you know, pass down the torch. So... I guess just to wrap it up, what are some resources or like maybe just one resource that you would recommend 
people who are interested in venture capital and, and breaking into the space, and if they're just students, what should they be reading? What should they be watching? Is there any recommendations you can make there? Definitely. So for starters, Venture Deals by Brad Feld is usually a great starter. It gives you a, a really good macro of sort of what's involved, what attempts you. It's just basically every little process um, in the venture capital uh, in this industry and what's involved. I think that gives you a very good holistic understanding of, of the industry. Uh, sort of beyond that, you'll probably be best place to subscribe to some of the newsletters that a lot of these, uh, a lot of VCs, typically Silicon Valley VCs, right? So Fred Wilson has a blog. Um, Eli Gill, who's a very notable angel investor, also has a very interesting blog. So you might be well placed to read that. And there's essentially uh, a bunch of resources out there that VCs are people that like to publish their writing. And they like to sort of, you know, be contrarian when they can. And depending on what sort of flavor you're into, what you're excited about, you might be best placed to follow uh, specific v- VCs that focus on specific verticals. So one of my mentors was uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Ash Fontana, who uh, is out based out of San Francisco. He runs this fund called Zeta Venture Partners, and it solely focuses on AI. So if you're interested in that space, follow what they do. And here's some of the podcasts that Ash uh, takes part in, and you might find that very valuable for, for, for what you're doing. And then beyond that, a more general podcast uh, I can't recommend more, which is 20 Minute VC. So Harry Stebbings, uh, who I've had the fortune of uh, knowing of my journey as well, we had, we had the same mentors, funnily enough. Um, it started off in a very similar situation. He wanted to build a VC podcast because there was no VC resources at the time and managed to build out you know, arguably one of the biggest networks and most downloaded VC podcasts in the whole industry. And it's called 20 Minute VC. Um, and, you know, he's super to be young. I think he's 21 or 22, and he's managed to do all this in three, four years. Awesome. So all of those links will be down below in the show notes. And actually on Venture Deals by Brad Feld, when I asked David, hey, I need to know more about VC because I'm an entrepreneur and I feel like people are pulling one over me. He recommended that book and I read it and I haven't gone back. It's been one of the best resources for learning about uh, venture deals and venture capital holistically. Um, so thank you for that, David. No, um, my pleasure. Finally, like, it, where, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they follow you? Uh, where's textbook ventures? Like, should they get involved? Uh, this is your plug, basically. Certainly. So um, I write the occasional piece on LinkedIn. I admit that I've been a bit sloppy lately, so I haven't updated this as frequently as I usually am. So um, if you'd like to connect, obviously just drop me a note on LinkedIn or shoot me a note at david at 256.ventures. I think AJ will, will include that in the notes below. Um, if you're a student uh, who's interested to get into entrepreneurship, you don't have to be a founder or necessarily building something. If that's something that is of interest, um, reach out to the textbook managers community. Um, we're always willing to help you know, founders or even aspiring founders sort of find their feet, connect with the right resources. So typically we'll do a lot of uh, workshops. We'll do a lot of uh, AMAs, so ask anything with um, people on the startup side in Australia or people on the startup or VC side in Australia. So we're really trying to be a platform that breaks down the walls between students and sort of, you know, the real world. And just to, I guess the mission is clear. We just want to empower student entrepreneurs and be a platform where it's not so scary to reach out to someone 
from a Canva or reach out to an investor like a Blackbird and just show you that, hey, like it's possible and don't be uh, don't be held back by, you know, your sort of apparent lack of experience because there will always be people that will support you. Awesome. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for taking up time on a Saturday morning and see you later. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode. It would mean a lot to me if you could hop onto iTunes and leave me a quick review. If you want to engage with me or my community more, just go to ajprakash.net and subscribe for more updates, podcasts, and more valuable content straight to your email. Thanks again. I'll catch you later.